One of the most uh, memorable classes I've taken in college has been anatomy. One reason why it was very memorable is because I had to memorize a whole bunch of body parts, muscles, bones, and all of that, and where they go. And that took a lot of time. So that experience has shown me that if I put my mind to it, I can do a lot of stuff. The, the other reason, though, it was very memorable to me is because in studying the human body, you can see so much detail within it, so much intention and purpose in the way that is put together. Uh, one thing that I learned, thankfully this is the case, that when we age, we have about 206 bones in our body. And I had to remember where all those bones were <laughs> for that class. But when we're born, we have about 300. We're born with about 300 bones and as we age, some of them begin to fuse together and become single bones. And from my understanding, the reason that is, is because when a baby is born, I'd imagine it would be pretty tough on the mother if they had full leg bones coming out and just, you know, that, all that uh, sturdiness of the bone just coming straight out. In God's wisdom, we can see that he thought about that. That, okay, for a little bit of time, these bones are going to not be fused so that they can more easily come through. And that, it just speaks, like just seeing that, you can see, like I said, you can see the intention and it just speaks to a creator, a designer. It speaks to the existence of God. And that came to mind because of our, the psalm that we're going to be looking at today, Psalm 19. I'm going to read through it and then we'll pray. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoice in the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. 
Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Because you show us who you are in your word, Lord, as well as in your creation. And we just pray right now that 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 would cause reviving of our hearts and of our minds, Lord, to just pray that you revive our hearts and minds, that we can see that in your word and see that you are worthy of all glory and all praise, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So David in this psalm is speaking of God's glory being revealed in both creation and in his word. The first six verses focus on God being revealed in his creation. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. The heavens, outer space, the sky, all those planets and stars, they don't speak with words. But the fact that they are so awe-inspiring speaks of God's existence. This message of God's glory given by the heavens is also observable by all people. In them, the heavens, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Here the son is compared to a bridegroom preparing to meet his bride. In other words, he is full of energy and excitement. Then it's compared to a strong man, an athlete or a warrior preparing for the course set before him, pointing to the strength and power of the son as it follows its course that God has set for it. The son, this huge, powerful orb that we all depend on for heat, Energy and light, the sun that some even worship, was given its tent, its boundaries, and course of movement by God. God's ability to create, confine, and direct something as great and powerful as the sun speaks highly of his power. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from his heat. Some have said this circuit of the sun speaks of the sun's course through the sky from our perspective with the sun rising in the east and then setting in the west and moving, you know, across the sky, every part of the earth seeing it. Others have said that this speaks of the sun's movement through the galaxy and nothing escaping its heat in that sense. It could possibly be referring to either of those, but I think the point is to express how far-reaching the sun's power is. Everybody has seen it. Everybody benefits from it. 
through observing it, everybody can acknowledge that intelligence is behind its existence. Aside from being used to gauge time and provide solar energy, the sun does a lot of things that we can take for granted. From the sun, we not only get light, but that light helps plants grow. The plants can produce oxygen for us to breathe. The plants also serve as food for humans and animals. And the animals fed by these sun-grown plants can also serve as food for people. Also, God's positioning of the sun in relation to earth, not so close that it will burn us up, not so far that it will cause us to freeze, speaks of his wisdom, intentionality, and care for us. There's so much interconnectedness between the things of God's creation that you literally have to suppress the wisdom, intention, and design behind it all if you want to say that God does not exist. Even though there are no words spoken by his creation, his existence is made obvious by it, so much so that those who reject God are without excuse, according to Romans 1, 19, 20. And that passage reads, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. The fact that the creative world around us proclaims the glory of God and shows us that he exists is enough to condemn those who reject him on the day of judgment because... Despite this revelation that there's a creator, no one truly seeks after him. Psalm 14.1 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Some have stated that fool here is not really describing intellect. But morality, meaning the phrase there is no God, isn't necessarily saying that God doesn't exist, but that if there is a God, he's not going to hold anybody accountable for the way they choose to live their lives. Therefore, I can live as if he doesn't exist at all. When Paul says in what Paul says in Romans rejects that idea, though, all are going to be held accountable and have to answer to God in the end because his existence has been made clear and simply saying he doesn't exist or even deeply believing that he's not going to judge does not get rid of the fact that he does exist and that he says there will be a judgment. However, although God's revelation through creation is enough to condemn, it isn't enough to save. As it says in the Roman passage, through creation, we can see God's eternal power and divine nature. What we can't see in creation are specifics about God's character or what he requires of mankind. Without these specifics, you can get to the point where you believe that there is a God, God's or a higher power that created everything, but that's about it. 
after that, you'd have to figure out what God, God's or higher power is true. There is a major component in Christianity that sets the God of the Bible apart from other gods or deities. That component being that he came down from heaven to dwell among people. So the first reason God's coming down from heaven makes the God of the Bible unique among other gods is because it makes him a personal God that desires relationship with his people while other deities are distant and impersonal. This also makes him unique because other religions require people to work their way to heaven or a heaven-like state through prayer, giving to the poor, meditation, and other services, while the God of the Bible came down and did the work that we couldn't do for ourselves. Not only that, but he continues the work in us until we meet him face to face. That sets him apart. We can get a glimpse of God's work in a person's heart in this next section of the psalm. In verses 7 through 11 of Psalm 19, David moves from speaking about how God's creation reveals his glory into what is revealed about God through his word. Many words are used in this section that refer to the word of God, such as law, testimony, precepts, commandments, rules. All of these words refer to different facets or aspects of God's word, but it's, it's all referring to God's word altogether. There's also these words used to describe used to describe God's word. Like, so you have these words that are speaking of, like, this is God's word, and then they're saying, then there's other words that are saying something about God's word, such as perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true, and righteous. Overall, it seems like these words are saying in various ways that God's word is authoritative and right, and not like right, based on what I think right is just, this is right, everything else is wrong because God said it type of deal. And this, this points to God's authority and righteousness. Verse 7 reads, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. God's word lacks nothing and is able to revive the soul. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17, it says, Uh, Paul speaking to Timothy, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The word lays out our need for salvation and the way to it through Jesus Christ. It revives the soul. God's word can also enable us to do all that he has for us to do. Uh, Psalm, back to the Psalm 19, the bottom of verse 7, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. God's trustworthy and reliable word gives us true wisdom. 
In this context, some say that this word simple basically means to believe and take in everything you see and hear, to have no discernment for what to approve or what to reject. Today, being open-minded is seen as a huge virtue. I think that being considerate and respectful of differences is pretty good, but I don't think that we should be open-minded in the sense that we are believing everything we see and hear. We don't want to be so open-minded that truth becomes non-existent. We can get this true wisdom or discernment to know what to approve or to reject from God in his reliable, trustworthy word. Verse 8 reads, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoice in the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. God's word gives us this wisdom to see his way as right. And the gift of knowing, just of, of being able to know what the right path is, that's one blessing, that God enlightens you to show you that his way is right. And actually being able to walk in agreement with God along this right path brings great joy. It rejoices the heart. God's word is absolutely pure, not mixed in any way with evil. As you take it in, it has the power to purify you, enabling you to see clearly. The fear of the Lord, verse 9, is clean, enduring forever. Fear of the Lord is used here in place of God's word or scripture as a way of showing the effect the word of God should have on a person. It should inspire a fear-like reverence of God that leads to right worship of him as laid out in the scriptures. Sometimes we can get so comfortable, so used to having the Bible with us on the bookshelf, in the back of the car, on a nightstand, on the phone, that we somehow forget that this is the way that God decided to reveal himself to us. When we read the scriptures, we're reading what God saw fit to show of himself. So I pray that the Lord would allow us to see his word as alive so that we can have the appropriate reverential fear of him, the reverential awe of him. Isaiah 6 comes to mind. In the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah has a vision of the Lord sitting upon a throne and these angelic beings are flying around him saying, holy, holy, holy about the Lord. And these praises become so loud that the whole place starts shaking. Seeing all of this calls Isaiah to see himself before God clearly. In Isaiah 6, 5, he says, woe is me for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Here we see Isaiah's response was first of self-condemnation. At the sight of God, he was at once aware of God's holiness and of his own wretchedness. His response, woe is me, demonstrates a fear of God. Led by the Holy Spirit, 
our response should be the same as Isaiah's. After realizing God's great power through creation and getting a glimpse of his holiness in scripture, there should be a reverential fear of the Lord. But let's look at what happens next in the rest of this passage in Isaiah 6. Verse 6 says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Isn't that what God does for us? When we come to him in our uncleanness, seeing ourselves rightly before him. His word is perfect and clean. How else are we in our filthiness to get clean from the stains of sin than to go to the one who is without spot or blemish? And not only is God without spot or blemish, but so is every word that he has spoken. His word is eternal as well, never passing away despite what the world may be saying. There is a lot, or there are a lot of people that are saying, like, we as people, we as humans are getting so advanced. You know, we're progressive, we're growing forward, we're making things better. And that old Bible is just, it needs to be updated. Like, some of that stuff, that was back then. Things have changed. We learned more. We're wiser now. Some of that stuff, we probably can adjust a little bit. If you, guys, if you still want to read the Bible, we can adjust it a little bit to make it fitting. But no, God's word endures forever. It's just as true today as when he first spoke it. And his word. In this life and the next, his word, his word remains. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So, God threw a chunk of things said about the law, but what has God decided to reveal about himself in his word? The answer can be seen in the words that David uses to describe it. God has shown that he is perfect, that he is sure, he's trustworthy, reliable, he is right, he is pure, with no evil within him. He endures forever, as does his word. And what he says is true and completely righteous. What does God reveal about, <clears throat> what does God reveal about his will for us in his word, according to this psalm? Overall, we can see that he wants to transform us, to give us new life. His word is said to revive the soul, brings us from death into life. It enables us to become wise, to receive truth, his truth, and reject lies. It produces true joy in our hearts and open our eyes to the truth of God. It produces the fear of the Lord, which will cause us to walk the path of eternal life with God. Now, as I stated earlier, God didn't stop at creation. He sent his word so that we might know him personally. And the effects of getting to know God through his word is abundant life. And not only is life produced through his word, but also a high regard for his word, a growing desire. And we can see this in verse 10 where David writes, his word 
is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than the honeycomb and the drippings of the honeycomb. So there should be a growing desire, and we should be seeking a greater desire for his word, a greater appreciation of his word. Verse 11, moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Servant implies that like he's following God, he's a, he submitted himself to God. But God's servants are warned in his word to continually abide in him and not to go astray from his path. In God's word, non-believers are warned to seek God while he may be found. So there are warnings, and heeding those warnings is great reward. As we move forward, we can see that David recognizes his need for God's guidance and intervention. Even with these revelations that God has given, he's still pleading to God. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Similarly to the sun's heat that nothing can escape from, as mentioned earlier, nothing wrong in our hearts can escape the mirror of God's word for those who look into it truthfully. David pleads to be cleansed from any unintentional sins that he is unaware of, and we should do the same. Who can really know our hearts other than God? The depths that sin can go, like only God truly knows. And as we move forward, in verse 13, he says, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins, those blatant sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. David just doesn't stop at hidden sins. He asks for freedom from blatant sins, basically saying, let them not have dominion over me. Let them not rule over me. Let me not be a slave to them. Let us not fall. Let us not fall into a place where we disregard God and our accountability to him. After acknowledging his dependence on God to keep him blameless, David closes with this final plea to God. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let the things I've said in this psalm, you could take it like he's saying this, this way. Let the things I've said in this psalm be made acceptable to you, my rock or my strength and my redeemer. It's almost as if he chose those two words, rock and redeemer, to capture the two types of revelation that God, that he's speaking of about God. My rock, my strength. God's strength and might was demonstrated through the greatness of his creation. My redeemer. His, re, his desire, God's desire to redeem us from death, foolishness, false living, and blindness and sh, is shown in the effects of his word. Our God is great and powerful enough to command the Son and personal enough to know the inner, work, inner workings of our heart and to know the number of hairs on our head. In this song, David addresses two ways God revealed himself to the world. But God did reveal himself in another way. Through the king of the line of David, 
Jesus Christ. God with us. Hebrews 1.3 calls Jesus Christ the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The word of God points to Jesus Christ as our rock and redeemer. He revives the soul. He cleanses us from sin. And he gives sight to the blind. So that's kind of what's being said in this song, or at least the pieces that I've, you know, pointed out. But what does this mean for us? Just kind of a recap. One, God reveals his power and glory through his creation. Through amazing things like ocean waves, the intellectual capacity of man demonstrated in scientific and technological advancements. And even the miracle of childbirth, we get to glorify God in it all because it's all the work of his hands. Unfortunately, it's all too easy to misplace the glory that we give out. We can easily falter into giving glory to this planet by making its preservation or saving our main goal. We can give glory to mankind for his strong ability to work and build and advance and explore and discover and question. We can even glorify ourselves because rather than seeing that we are made in the image of God, we see ourselves as God or decide to make or we decide to make a God that suits us. In this world of so many created things created by God that are competing for our worship and praise, let us be a people who give glory and praise where it is due to God, the creator of everything. Two, God did not send his word to us because he wanted us to check it for errors. As much as people may question God and judge his word, we do not stand in judgment of God's word. His perfect, sufficient, and righteous word stands in judgment of us and has the power to renew us. So we have the revelation of God, but does that really matter if God doesn't do the work in us? We can't even truly bow the knee before God without his grace. David, even after writing this amazing psalm through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, still pleaded with God that his words would be acceptable, that his heart position would be acceptable. God shows us through his grace and mercy. He shows us our need to be made acceptable. He lets us know that we need to be acceptable. We're walking around thinking that we're all good. Not only does he show us, then he does the work to make us acceptable. And keep us acceptable. Without the conviction of the Holy Spirit to show us the glory of God in his creation and in his word, we'll be walking around blind and in open rebellion. And my plea in closing is that he would open our eyes 
so that we can see him clearly, be transformed, and give God his due glory.